prosecution outlined how accounting practices what fuck? What? did not What kind of likeness is that? If they were great artists, they'd be in a museum. I'm fucking fodder for cartoonists now. All right, welcome to another fine episode of Gutter Boys. Gutter Boys is a small press comics podcast about the ins, the outs, the highs and lows of making comics. I'm your host, JB, with my co-host, Cam. What it do? On this episode, we're joined with Philadelphia's own Steve Arnold. He's on the show to talk about his uh, semi-recent book, Perry Midlife, as well as his time uh, in the uh, film industry and uh, how he's eventually come back to uh, making the comics that he loves. And uh, we're very grateful for that because they are great. It's true. This is true. Uh, we have a couple of things to talk about, though, before then. Uh, there's some news that we can cover. Yeah. A couple of things in the news here on uh, Gutter News Network. Um, the Marvels, uh, the uh, Brie Larson-led uh, superhero team-up movie that uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe just dropped, is on track to be the worst opening day in uh, MCU history as uh, it approaches slightly over $20 million. So uh, is it cooked, JB? Is it cooked? I mean, I think it's been cooked. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I think these numbers probably are just kind of uh, further suggesting that these the, 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 this whole run is kind of done. Yeah. And they uh, were saying, and I say they, uh, some random account on Twitter was saying that, like, the Thursday night, like, midnight showings for the Marvels brought in, like, $6 million. And uh, to put that in perspective, like the lowest before this was Flash, which was just, God, I guess six months ago, maybe a little more. But um, that pulled in nine million and that was like the lowest. So it's even lower than the lowest that was shockingly low. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, they are saying that uh, they're approaching, you know, like uh, the original Captain America actor, as well as Robert Downey Jr. to try to bring them back in. And then just try to Crazy. say it's multiverse. <laughs> That's Crazy. how they can unwrite it all. <laughs> That's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> That's so sad. I don't even know if they it's, can it's save crazy. it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's crazy to watch Marvel slowly turn into DC 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're just scrambling mm -hmm. and nothing seems to work. And anytime they do have a hit on their hands, something else comes up to undermine it. Right. And I don't, I don't know. I don't, I... I know a lot of people out there who like consume this stuff regularly are claiming, oh, it's because of the creative direction of Disney and, and, and Disney is a terrible company. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's also just oversaturation. Like we've been doing this for over a decade now and eventually you're going to see diminishing returns. Yeah. I mean, it's going on like two decades, really. I mean, we're yeah. four years away from the first Avengers movie being 20 years old. You know, crazy. so <laughs> crazy. I mean, because it came out in 07, right? Or am I tripping? No, that's uh, like 07, Iron Man 08. came out in 2010. No, no, way. 2008, 2008. Okay, 2008. so it, Iron Man was before Avengers, right? Yeah, Iron Man was the, the first, first like okay. Marvel films, like MCU, whatever yeah, movie they did. My timeline's a little fucked up then. Okay, so we're going on, if that was 08, we're still 15 years since that shit started, you know? Yeah. So it's still yeah. a very, very long time. I mean, like what TV show runs 15 years? I mean, there's plenty of examples of long running TV shows, I guess, but it's very, you know, few and far between. 
Now, speaking of Marvel, though, um, have you seen, I think we might have talked about this when they announced the deal like years ago, but the Marvel Toshin books uh, that are published by Toshin, mm -hmm. have you uh, seen any of these like newer editions or anything like that? No. Okay. No, I have not. They're uh, really nice hardcover editions. Uh, they're limited to like 5,000 copies and they're numbered or whatever, but they print them at like uh, 11 by 15 and they're on, you know, premium paper stock, et cetera, et cetera. But the price point of these books are like $200 a volume. And then they'll have a special edition that comes with like a slip case and it's like 600. So do you feel like, you know, Marvel, because the stuff that they're reprinting here is like the uh, original Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. All the old stuff, the classic Kirby, Ditko, Stan Lee stuff. Do you feel like this stuff has entered a realm of like high art collectability and warrants being published in this format by Toshin and also like at a purchase prohibitive price point as well? I don't know. Maybe it's just them reverting back to this like very hyper niche market, you know, just like yeah. wealthy fucking old white guys that just really love comic books. Yeah. And then, you know, because that's what that's who it has to be for, because kids can't buy this shit. And I mean, yes, I think Toshin did publish like smaller editions, but I think they might have been like a greatest hits collection of stories. I could be wrong there, but mm -hmm. these are actually like published like in order. Do you think like kids would even want to read this shit nowadays, though? Because it's like so wordy, like all the old shit, like it looks cool and it's, you know, classic for a reason. A lot of the lore in the movies they love and stuff is there. But I don't even know how readable that shit is today to even market towards a younger audience. Well, that stuff would have been more viable if the media that Disney pumps out with the Marvel license was as hot as it was five, 10, 15 years ago. Mm hmm. Because comic shops do see a pretty decent rise in sales, or at least requests for collections of older titles so that they can go and read what these characters from, you know, X, Y, and Z movie or TV show is from that they're not familiar with. Yeah. Uh, so there's like some viability there. But again, it's like, who gives a shit about these new TV shows and these movies for the most part? And who's willing to throw down three or four hundred dollars for a book? Right. No, exactly. So it's like this weird, like adult collector's market item. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure they're beautiful books. They look really nice. And uh, it would be cool to have like some of that Kirby art, you know, reprinted at that size, almost near 11 by 17. I'm assuming with it being like 11 by 15, they just like are printing the live area. But um, that said, uh, you know, kind of going back to, I guess, Miss Marvel and what got us here anyways. Uh, spoiler alert for anybody that actually wants to watch this dog shit movie. The post credits scene. Apparently, they. <laughs> They show Kelsey Grammer as Beast from the uh, Fox X-Men movies. So they've officially, I guess this is where they're going to try to like get the audience back because they're going to be like, oh, hey, look, Hugh Jackman's here. Right. James Marsden's Cyclops is here. And yeah, so I don't know. And apparently the uh, Fantastic Four movie is supposed to open up all this multiverse shit so they can bring in Robert Downey Jr. and everything. I just see this shit on Twitter. I'm, I'm just, you know relaying what could be fake news but i mean it's probably fake news honestly discussing like a lot film of, and shit like that are the accounts here and variety right I, I guess they're probably like the wrestling observer of uh hollywood <laughs> yeah i mean nine times out of ten that stuff is usually just hearsay yeah uh but i mean I'm, it's not beyond them to want to go back to that well because I mean, I don't know. That's like, where the money was. <laughs> I mean, it's where the money was and they have no clear direction now. Yes. You know, like they're they're basically just in panic mode and just like hitting. They're just throwing as much as they can at the wall and seeing what sticks and nothing is sticking. So 
what do you do? You just go back to the, you know, tried and true shit that you've done in the past that people ate up. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of hope that people want more of that. Yeah. But I mean, also, it's like, why would uh, it's it seems pretty on par for the course for these like major studios to just like bring back these like over the hill actors to play the same characters that they played 15, 20, 25 years ago. It's just like, you know, Seinfeld reprising, you know, his role as like his sitcom self in a Super Bowl ad just on a bigger scale. You know, it's just, uh, I don't know, or like a, a stone cold coming back like it's a feel good moment, but it's never the same. And, and it also has no longevity for the future. Yes, true. Like you can't do anything with that. It, it, it might hold you over for, you know, that year or the year following. But what are you going to do after that? Yeah, right. Well, um, our favorite New Yorker, Jimmy Palmiotti, said this on Twitter. I had this uh, to bring up on the show because there was a lot of discourse about like Marvel being cooked, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people are having meltdowns. And Jimmy is someone who's, you know, been able to make like a fine living off of comics since like the Wizard Magazine days, you know. But he wrote on Twitter, wanting any superhero movie to fail at the box office is not a good look, folks. And here's the kicker. He completely just sits on his own balls here. Each one that does makes a group of people looking to make them look elsewhere for new ideas. God forbid that Hollywood looks for new fucking ideas. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't really understand what his point was. I guess he's like, I think he thought he had a point, but he really isn't saying shit besides, hey, superhero movies are the problem. But he was trying to say they're not the problem, while in fact just spotlighting how much of the problem they are um, in like, you know, mainstream Hollywood. But, yeah, um, I mean, there's there's definitely like a group of people who are very online who just want the same oh, slop. Yeah, every every you know, just repeat it just over and over and over again. But unfortunately, that is such a small demographic of people that when you do enact that, like on a company wide sort of strategy, it does not pan out. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. It's like these companies are just kind of like floundering because they just don't know what the fuck to do. Yeah, it's, they're just gra they're just grasping at straws at this point. Yeah, it's not even treading water like they're kind of dipping below the water um, at this point, gasping for air and they'll do whatever it takes to survive and they will survive. They'll find a way. It may not be with Marvel, but uh, yeah, I mean, these companies are too big to fail, too. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They'll find a way. They'll find a way. Yeah, they'll either sell off those assets, those licenses, which I think that's like a worst case scenario. Right. Right. Yeah. And because they get they, they get so many kickbacks from the federal government at this point that it's just like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they succeed or not. There's always going to be a safety net there to protect them. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's like the stuff that we're seeing right now with WB, too, I think, is really highlighting that, you know, just like basically burying finished productions just so they can get a write off. It's it's fucking wild. And I know that there's been a precedence for that, but I don't I don't remember anything to this degree in terms of like doing it as many times as WB has done since the new ownership took over. Yeah. And to be honest, like, I think that we'll see in the next three years change hands again. Some other company I feel like is going to buy them again or Discovery or whoever the fuck the parent company is now. I just. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, I can't. I mean, we can go on. Yeah. For a while about how fucked HBO has become because of Discovery. Right. Yeah, I mean, even the app is trash, bro. 
<laughs> yeah, the, the app is fucking trash. The fact that I have to go through 30 minutes of ads just to watch an episode of Sopranos now is so fucking annoying. Oh, they priced they priced me out on that too because uh like it was like 99.99 for ad list for the entire year. I was like, "All right, not bad." And then this year they wanted something crazy like 169.99. I was like, "Nope." I'm and not here's paying the thing, there's, n- <laughs> there's nothing stopping them from asking more. Yeah, well, and it's like $20 a month or like 170 for the year or something like that. Yeah, it, people like commentators pointed this out while all this shit was happening. When we happily allowed all these tech companies to take over the entertainment industry, they were pointing out that this is what was going to take place. You're, you're going to remove the standard cable model, right? Where people have to purchase piecemeal parts of whatever they want in order to have access to whatever programming that they're wanting to watch. Yeah. And so by the end of the day, your bill is like stacked yeah, with you, all these individual pricings. They broke down cable just to make cable. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And that was always that was always the goal. That was always the fucking goal. Yeah. You know, like it was so transparently obvious and people were talking about this and bringing it up. But I don't think anybody really just like sat with that until it was too late. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because we're fucked now. Yeah, no, we're we're 100% back to that model, but now we're even in a worse place now because now physical media is so far removed from the picture mm-hmm. that you are now entirely at the beck and call of these tech companies in yeah. terms of like what is available, what you have access to, even ownership. New shit. Yeah, ownership, not even a question anymore. You right. don't own anything. You're basically just renting stuff for long term yep. or based on their terms. So like whenever they feel like removing it, that's it. Yep. Uh, so I... I don't know. I mean, you know, like torrenting and all that is still very much a thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're going to see more of it in the coming years as this, you know, this current trajectory continues. And I'm all for it. I'm I'm pro that. I will say that right now. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, definitely. Um, I'll be back on the Pirate Bay or whatever they call it if it uh, continues to get more and more out of hand. So while we're on the topic of like major publishers and major licenses, we can probably bring up this recent tweet from Ben Templesmith about IDW. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar with Ben Templesmith, he was a comic creator, probably most well known for 30 Days of Night, uh, which was a horror property that he developed. It was a comic that was then adapted into, I think, two movies. Right? I knew the one, but it could have been a second one, to be honest. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Or maybe it was a movie and then a TV series. It doesn't matter. Anyway. He got his paycheck. That's all that really matters. Yeah. And uh, he recently tweeted, last night I found out uh, an IDW executive sent, since let go, so he's not, this, this person in question is no longer at IDW, was using actual company funds to pay the rents and more of at least two quote unquote sugar babies. What's mm. more, <laughs> what's more, this is one of the guys who wrote me out of my own creator-owned comic TV development deal in-house at IDW. Wow. Hang on. So, um, what position did he say that they... Executive. An executive. Okay. Anything that is said here is going to be alleged, but I'm going to look up who all got fired here in the IDW (laughs) (laughs) recent layoffs, who was an executive, so we can figure out who this was, allegedly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's kind of vague about timelines, too, because he doesn't mention when this was. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, anybody that's been following IDW knows that they've had a very tumultuous kind of history in the last 15 years. Yeah. Uh, changing hands, new ownership, et cetera. 
reorganizing, as they say, of the corporate structure of the company. So, uh, yeah, it's a little murky in terms of like who he's referring to, I think. But either way, this kind of lines up with a lot of stuff that I was hearing about IDW in terms of like delayed payouts for artists and creators. I don't know if that's improved or not. Uh, I'm hoping it has. But I, I know for sure that that was a major sticking point that caused a lot of uh, people to kind of move away from ever doing work with them again. Right. No, for sure. Yeah. I don't think that stuff's been fixed, but maybe with the new regime at the head, it has been. But maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I didn't Who hear. Knows? I haven't heard anything positive and not to say I've heard anything negative, but. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah. Pre, yeah more, right. I've, I've heard yeah. negative things, but nothing to the degree of they haven't paid me. Yes. It's, it's been usually stuff like they sideline creators. Uh, they maybe, uh, you know, did some other shady things, mm -hmm. you know, this, this is not to say that IDW has gotten better in that sense, but, uh, I don't think they've been as actively downplaying their whole not reimbursing people. Yeah. Well, here's the list of allegedly, everybody that got, allegedly, uh, laid allegedly. off, you know, uh, Blake Kobashigawa, Keith Davidson, Anna Morrow, Topher Alford, uh, Greg Gustin. Jack Rivera, Megan Brown, Zach Boone, Tom Waltz, Devin Ashby, and Sean Lee. Um, so I'm sure other people may have gotten laid off as well. But maybe on that list, maybe they, <laughs> they were like, the I one. Mean, yeah, it's hard to say. It's really hard yeah. to say. And again, this is all unverified. Yes. I, I think the only source on this has been Ben Temple Smith himself. Yeah, right. So, so go after to say him. This, <laughs> I mean, this could all just be rumors. But, uh, you know, I think that there's probably, even if it's not 100% true, I think there's a tiny bit of truth in that statement <laughs> in yeah. terms of how they've been mishandling uh, their money. And I mean, it's been obvious too. I mean, they, they lost Transformers, which was like a pretty big license for them for years. Lost it to Image, bro. Lost it to Image. And now Image is pumping out DWJ. Thankfully for, da yeah. Yeah, thankful for, for, for Daniel to give him an opportunity to take a crack at a license that I know he's very, very invested in. He's a longtime, hardcore G1 Transformers fan. Uh, anybody that knows him, has been to his place, they know that dude fucking loves Transformers. <laughs> Yeah, he fucking really, really loves Transformers. And so, I, I mean, Image was smart to get him on that book. I, I mean, it's not like they needed to be um, persuaded considering it's Daniel. Uh, but from what I can tell, it seems that book has done pretty well. It's only on issue two, but people are, are really, really vocal about their support of that book and how happy they are with it. So and I know Daniel himself poured a lot of time and effort into that project because, again, it's something that he holds very dearly uh, in his heart about. So. Yeah, uh, I'm interested to see where that goes with with image. Yeah, definitely. Um, the covers look great. I haven't seen any of the interiors, but I can only imagine. Um, but I've seen the covers solicited, and they look fucking awesome. Yeah, so shout I mean, out DWJ. It's Daniel. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like even the worst Daniel Warren Johnson book is going to be better than like 90 percent of what's on the racks. So yeah, yeah. Alrighty, so before we get out of here, I do want to thank everybody who bought a uh, copy of my comic. It is now, quote-unquote, sold out in my store. Uh, it won't be reprinted until, like, uh, I do shows next year, so, like, next spring. However, 
Uh, if you would like a copy of Estate, um, I've sent over hand numbered specials, a new comic by Fennell, a different color, a prison planet, different color and it follows Hank, a well-turned bandit who escapes the Raiders, comic is forced has to some as well. I think Gutter Pops mainly in going the store-type deal when Wigshop can't order them online. So thank you to everybody that did get a copy from me, but if you missed it, check out one of those two spots. Nice, nice. Alright, so we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll be joined with Philly Waterstone sketch featuring a character or a moment on dust. Hank the Artist is exclusively available to order from Wigshop Webshop, and you can secure a copy over at www.wigshopwebshop.com. And now a few words from our sponsors, the Santo Sisters. Solo son chicas normales Pero cuando los problemas aparecen Son superhéroes muy sensuales Santos, las hermanas santos Como ellas no hay tantos Dispuesto a luchar Santos, las hermanas santos Como ellas no hay tantos Dispuesto a luchar magazine is out now. If you've ever been to an amazing rock and roll show and thought, I wish I could experience this moment again, but in comic form, then Sid the Cat magazine is for you. Fiercely independent show promoter Sid the Cat have joined forces with comics journalist Andrew Greenstone to bring you an ongoing publication that documents the SoCal indie rock scene. This stunning 52-page full-color magazine features comics, articles, photos, and illustrations from a rotating cast of local illustrators and writers. It's a celebration of Sid's artists and venues and supports those keeping the bleeding edge of the indie music scene alive. Our first issue covers musical artists Big Thief, Illuminati Hotties, Mike Kroll, Fucked Up, Finn Lilly, Katie Kirby, Kate LeBon, Cursive, Christian Lee Hudson, No Win, and so many more. If you are a fan of comics, indie music, zines, rock reports, or community by the way of culture, order a copy now at SidTheCat.com forward slash Sid dash zine. Again, that's SidTheCat.com forward slash Sid dash zine. Athenium Comic Art is an original art website for some of the best cartoonists in the business. They currently represent Remy Boydell, Marie Capel France, Nicole Gu, Jonathan Hill, Emma Hunsinger, Casey Nowak, Micah Song, and Tilly Walden. 
Athenium Comic Art gives fans the opportunity to own original piece of art from their favorite comics and support the artists that they love. In their short time in business, they've already shipped many iconic pages out to hardcore fans across the globe. Don't miss out on your chance to own a one-of-a-kind piece of history. Check out their website, AtheniumComicArt.com, and type in Gutter Gang at checkout to receive free shipping on your first order. Again, the website is AtheniumComicArt.com, and the code is Gutter Gang. Morning, Gary. Morning, Marianne. Need a menu? Nah, I'll just have the usual. You sure do love your eggs and coffee, Gary. Best way to start your morning, Marianne. Well, that and an issue of Town and County. What's that? Town and County is a new comic series written and drawn by cartoonist Alex Nall. He's that guy that wrote them books about teaching and that Mr. Rogers feller. Oh, he was such a nice man. The first issue is 36 pages of black and white comic stories with beautiful color covers and features six stories about folks in our little township here in Illinois, like Susie Barber, the house cleaner that uncovers her client's dirty laundry, if you know what I mean, and Stanley Pepper, that big feller that just lost his job and took to drinking every night at Bugs's Tavern. Well, ain't that something? Town & County is published by Ivy Terrace Press, headquartered in Chicago. Chicago? Who would want to live there? So dirty. Each issue comes with a copy of the Hometown Hero, our little town's newsletter, and it's only $8. $8? Where can I get it, Gary? You can order a copy of Town & County on the internet at storeenvy slash Comics. Oh, there's your breakfast, Gary. Thanks, Mary Ann. Ah, nothing like a cup of coffee and a good comic book. Rust Belt Review is a quarterly comics lit magazine featuring serialized and short form comics from some of the most exciting cartoonists in the small press scene today. Volume 1 features work from Gutter alums M.S. Harkness, Audra Stang, and Caleb Arecchio, along with work by Andrew Greenstone, Sean Knickerbocker, and Juan Jose Fernandez. You can order your copy of Rust Belt Review today by going to rustbeltreview.org. Enter in promo code GUTTER to receive two bucks off your order. Again, that website is rustbeltreview.org. Promo code GUTTER. The Last Aviatrix is a post-nuclear adventure comic by independent Los Angeles-based cartoonist Buster Cagle. The story follows Summer, our last aviatrix, who pilots the sole surviving airplane, a nuclear-powered B-29, as she travels the ruined world finding ways to survive and help humanity while dealing with the eminent threat of the Atomborn, a rare breed of atomic wizards that want to see her out of the sky. Her mission becomes complicated when she accidentally picks up Henry, an Atomborn child who wields incredible power, and Clementine, a berserker on a quest for vengeance. Can our aviatrix survive this ruined and irradiated way Land? Every issue can be read for free on BusterKegel.com slash comics. Paper copies can be ordered as well, but, you know, you can still read it for free. If you like Wizards or Warplanes, go check it out. Now, back to our program.
and welcome back from the break. Today, it's been a long time coming. We are joined by Philadelphia's own S.R. Arnold. You may know him from uh, Heel on the Shovel Press and uh, the new comic series that's uh, taking the world by storm, the Perry <laughs> series. First book, uh, Perry Midlife. New one, Perry Shitlife. Uh, what's up, Steve? Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, good to have you finally. So um, I just want to let you know off top, this new book, I mean, the first one was really good, but this second one is just... It's incredible, man. One of my favorite books of the year. Um, I guess I'm going to oh, go ahead man. and yeah, start there. Your first book ended kind of like, you know, you didn't necessarily know there was going to be a second one, but if you read the first book, you said that the, you know, Perry character was going to return. So you didn't yeah. know, but the ending, you know, I kind of like the idea of everything like wrapping itself up nicely, but also like returning. So do you like doing these self-contained stories like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think like, I try to make everything kind of its own book, but can be read like collectively as like a continuing story. Like, I don't know, episodic, but like X-Files style. Sure. Like you don't really, you know. Yeah. Season one, baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think there's like value to that because I don't know if there's like an actual study or something like that, but um, you don't really number these two stories. I mean, you do as far as like a catalog number. It's like, you know, H.O.T. Press number six and seven, but that's and we'll right. get into that. That's, you know, a continuation of the other books you've done, almost like a record label catalog number, not really an issue yeah. number. And I guess, JB, you can get in on this, too. Do you feel like numbering comics, like, kind of gets your reader out of it? Like, if you look at, like, you know, I guess for an example, like, a 8-Ball 17, like, do you feel like that alienates a reader, even though some of that stuff is self-contained? Like, numbering an issue versus not numbering an issue? Is that for me or JB? Oh, whoever. Both of you all. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like uh, there's, like, a bit of, like, you know, new people coming in being like, uh, I don't know where to start. And... It's just kind of like if they're self-contained and there's no real number to them, like you can kind of be like, well, you know, if your books kind of deal with like different themes, then you can kind of be like, well, what are you into? You're into more of like, sure. you know, punk music or like being like a bummed out millennial and they'll all connect, but like you don't really need to read anything in order. But I, I do think it's a, a little bit more approachable because like people can flip through them and be like, oh, you know, this one seems to be speaking to me or like. Nah, like, not this one. Not this one, bro. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm all about, like, I don't know. I feel like number them, that's cool, uh, too. But, like, there's, there's something a little bit, like, approachable, more approachable about just kind of, like, having this nebulous kind of thing of books um, that you can just kind of, like, reach in and pull one out. That's where I'm at with it as well. And I do like that, you know, you can get like a bigger picture from your work if you do, you know, you get more, uh, you understand more of the nuances of the character and stuff if you read both, but you can definitely read each one on its own, like you, uh, I guess, intended to do. But yeah, I think I'm kind of with you there. Uh, I do think that like numbering comics can be like a little daunting, especially if you're at like a small press show where you've got so much competition around you. And I don't even want to say competition, oh, yeah. but I get, you know what I'm saying? Like there's so mm -hmm. many options. So I think like, you know, going forward, you know, just personally, I've done like a few issues of vacation. I think I'm only going to put the issue number on the inside cover, like yeah. in the little like oh, fine yeah. print, you know, because I don't want to put like yeah, number yeah, exactly. five on the cover or whatever. And people be like, oh, well, I guess I got to buy the first four. And it's like, well, I don't even have the first four. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that's I mean, we've been my writing partner, Mike and I like, you know, we've done a couple of books together and, you know, we've been doing the series here on the shovel and like we're working on the third book now, but like, you know, exactly. It's like when you're at, when you're at shows, uh, people are like, Oh, like they're, they're drawn to like one cover. Like it's like issue two. 
and then like, oh, do I have to read the first one? And that one's like, yeah, you kind of do. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then like they just kind of put it back on the shelf and kind of walk away. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you kind of teed that up perfectly because I mean, you sent me a bunch of your books, but these Perry books, if I'm not mistaken, outside of the uh, was a Swamp Parade, uh, the anthology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Swamp yeah. Parade. You had some self-contained strips, but the other stuff you worked with the writer on, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my good friend Mike Camison. We kind of just like started doing stuff together. Uh, I don't know, like almost ten years ago. Just kind of like doing little things here and there, seeing if like you know we jive as a uh, a working relationship. And you know, Mike Mike is one of my favorite writers in the world. He's just so mm -hmm. funny. And I so like the Perry books kind of came out of Mike almost dying. And oh fuck, okay, yeah, like it's actually so. He kind of he wrote about it in our short comic that was uh, <laughs> Eisner nominated. Oh, I should have teed uh, that up at the uh, at the beginning. Yeah. We don't have many Eisner nominated people on here. A few, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have teed that up and plugged that at the beginning. Congrats, by the way. Oh, it's an honor just to be nominated for sure. You know? <laughs> hey, is there clout that comes with that? Do you feel like you've kind of like gotten a rub from that, or do you think it's just doesn't even matter because you didn't win? And not to like make and, you feel bad about that. No, but has no. That you? I, I mean, not yet. Um, I'm hoping like when I apply for like, you know, jobs or something that like it, it might get me in the door a little quicker, but like, no, it, it really hasn't. I mean, it sold a couple of books, but you know, uh, the anthology that it's in kind of sells itself. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, Mike had written this story in it about his kind of like brush with death and he had gotten pancreatitis, which is why I don't think he minds me talking about it since like, you know, we published it. and. So he was just kind of like not able to like to work in books, to work on his writing. So while I was kind of like grappling with him in the hospital all the time, I started just like kind of doodling on my own. And, uh, you know, Perry Midlife was just kind of supposed to be like an eight page experiment that just kind of grew into a book and just kind of started getting some traction. And uh, that's kind of where it, where it ended up and how it kind of came to be. And you do plan on, you said you were working on the third issue with Mike on the Hill on the Shovel book, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So now that he's like back, he uh, bounced back and is uh, full of piss and vinegar and life again. And like he finished writing the third book and I got about maybe a third of that drawn. Okay. So I'm hoping that like <laughs> we've been teasing that for like the last four years, but yeah, I don't know. Hopefully by the end of like, this year maybe next year have that out just to kind of like put an end to it um i think we're both kind of tired of it but it's just kind of just waiting and it's i don't know i think it's some of his best writing in that book and so i want to do it justice and get you know get it out there in the world yeah definitely uh, so as far as working with a writer versus working on your own and I don't want you to like bury Mike. I'm not asking for any of that, but like, which do you prefer? Do you prefer working with the writer? Do you prefer not working with the writer? What are the nuances you prefer working with one and working without one? Oh, um, I kind of love both. Mm -hmm. Like working with like Mike, I think tends to allow me to kind of focus on the art more. I think I've gotten better as an artist because of that. You know, if I go back and I look at like the first books that I did, just like, you know, I don't even want to look at them because like, they just seem so juvenile, but like there's like a chance to kind of like really focus on like the visual storytelling and 
writing for myself is kind of like a little self-flagellation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and especially because like a lot of the stuff I do, do with is semi-autobio. So it's like, you know, just lifting up the, the rug on a lot of things. And the next book is going to be like a dark comedy focusing on like some inherited trauma and like, you know, what and death, <laughs> I guess. And like, uh, so it's 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 a mixed bag. But now not to cut you off, when you say the next book, do you mean the next Perry book or the next? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, the ne cool. the next, yeah. Next Perry book. Gotcha. Gotcha. But yeah, it's 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 I, I, I enjoy both. Like I'm a collaborator at heart. Like I, I love working with people. I love just kind of like feeding off that energy and shit. Yeah, this is kind of like uh it's a comfort zone. But I do really like working by myself as well cuz it's just like I don't know, growing as a person so to speak in in sort of that kind of I don't know. Um yeah. <laughs> no, you're all good. So JB, I know yeah. you also, you know, you do both. Um and I don't know if we've ever actually gotten that get, gotten into that on the show, but as far as like, you know, you and your preference, I mean, do you like one system more than the other? Because I feel like you do go back to working with writers pretty often, but you also do just as much by yourself. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, you know, I think it really is a case by case thing. I don't really see it. I mean, ideally it would just be me. I, mm -hmm. I, I think most cartoonists have this position in many ways. They won't outright say it, but I think uh, cartoonists who are doing this to begin with ideally would like to have control over all facets of the story they're telling but there are exceptions in that if you find the right people that you want to work with and you gel with then why not you know like let's make this toxic uh writer oh, red yeah, flags yeah, writer red flags for you all because I've never worked with the writers, so oh. I have no experience with this shit. <laughs> uh, Steve, I, I'd like to hear your your go at this first. Uh, and it doesn't have to be with someone you worked with, but like if someone approached you with a project, what are some red flags that just immediately disqualify you from ever working with that person? I think it's it, it would be like ultimate control over like the visual aspect of it. Like the way that Mike and I work is like, we kind of respect each other's medium. So he gives me just like full autonomy to kind of interpret what he's writing and kind of like break things down. Like if he, you know, has like a panel that I see is more of like, you know, I could stretch this out into like three panels or a page and, you know, and, uh, and he just kind of like flows with whatever I do with that. But I think like if somebody's like, just kind of like, I don't know, just really kind of, truly seeing their vision out through you where they're just like kind of micromanaging. Yeah. That would be a, uh, a huge red flag. Yeah. For personally. sure. Personally. But yeah, I don't know. Also like if I don't like the writing, you know? Yeah. 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 Cause I, you would hate, I mean, I've never done it, but I would hate to be chained to some shit that I didn't even like as a script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's gotta be rough. Just like spending, I don't know, half a year doing something that you absolutely hate. Yeah, <laughs> especially for no like no money in small press. I don't want to say no money, but it's different if you're like working in the oh, mainstream no comics money. bubble yeah. and you're getting a page rate, you know, like I'll put up with some hack writer if I'm making 300, 400 a page. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jamie, where are you up. at? Let's let's let that toxic energy out. I mean, I don't know. I feel like the first red flag is a stranger. Yeah. And I know that sounds okay. 
I know that sounds fucked up, but if a stranger approaches you and they, you've never interacted with this person before in your life. Yeah. And they're trying to pitch you a story for you to draw for them. To me, that's a red flag. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's, that sounds weird, but. What if the stranger has like an established, like, you know, body of work? You know, like, let's just say it's some writer just hit you up being like, hey, I found your work. Would you be interested in working together? Does that kind of make it a little easier or even then you're like, eh? uh, I would say it's still a red flag if there's no payment involved. OK, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> I I'm sure there are instances where someone who you've never met before engages you and then they sort of sell you on a story that you're actually super into. And there's like no upfront payment or page rate or whatever available. I would still say that you would want to tread carefully. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, and I think that's where, that's where working with a writer really complicates things to begin with is that, uh, there, there is this kind of like give and take that needs to take place, especially if you're working on a project that requires a lot of time and effort on your part as the artist and there's no discussion of how you're going to be compensated for your time i i would say that that's a problem Mm -hmm. but if you're friends and you know each other and you know you guys are just hashing out ideas and i think that's fine you know for sure hell yeah 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 because otherwise they're just they're otherwise they're just using you like they would use any fucking adobe program you know like you're just you're you're (laughs) basically just a tool that they can utilize but they don't you're the ai generator yeah yeah yeah. no yeah basically so uh one thing i do want to kind of like bring up with you steve um i feel like i mean just based off like the music uh mentions and then the new issue like you know there's a lot of music involved um yeah are you like uh from the punk scene or something like that that's just a vibe i get i don't think i've ever actually talked to you about this are you like an ex-punk or still a punk or yeah why scene so, uh, yeah, I spent like my formative, like twenties in the DIY, uh, punk scene. Sure. Um, yeah. The, the, the aforementioned, uh, comic that, that Mike and I did for too tough to die is basically about like that, like growing up in the burbs and like wanting to be punk and just like not really being good at skating or like, you know, not really having anybody to really show me like what punk music is until like, you know, middle school and to meet like the asshole punker kids who are like, I love their style, but they're kind of assholes sort of thing. Yeah. And like, it wasn't like really until like, I don't know, I hit like a kind of rock bottom and just started like really living into that scene, being just like unemployed, just, you know, trying to find work. And like just kind of connecting with those people and that community and just like finding like, Oh, like, you know, punk is more of a state of mind than it is like a visual aesthetic. And that just kind of just like blew open the doors and just kind of kind of set my life into, into that path. And like all the DIY stuff that I started doing, then I started just kind of like reincorporating into like how we, do comics and stuff too like because like i love like handmade shit like you know you know you can have like the most like pristine looking book but like some of the best shit i've ever read has just been like poorly xeroxed you know zines from you know that i picked up at like a show or something for sure so um 
were you playing music and stuff like that or were you just going to shows yeah yeah so the band in the book is my old band from that time oh, okay yeah hell yeah uh and you know we we kind of broke up before we ever released our record so like the book was kind of like kind of like the 10-year anniversary of that band uh so i decided to release the the cassette tape along with the comic um and kind of incorporating um like all the people in that in the comic are like my old bandmates so like mel was one of my best friends l and uh she was a singer and crow is my buddy tom who we called old crow he was our guitar player and lucy was bass and buddy kyle was the drummer and yeah so it was just kind of like fun kind of putting them back into it and getting to relive those days and like you know scrounge trying to find these old recordings of shit like you know half the tape is just like old iphone recordings from like a basement show or something <clears throat> so it was like i don't know it, it was a lot of fun just kind of being able to to relive that but also like also feel kind of grateful that i kind of <laughs> like grown out of that a little bit but like in spirit still there you know sure yeah no definitely and you know you kind of mentioned there you know a supplemental you know you put the record with the book that is something that we got questions about later from listeners so i don't want to get too far into it sure um, sure or actually we can just disqualify those questions if we go ahead and answer it now but one thing that you do in addition to these comics is you constantly have like tie-ins, whether it's a board game or, you know, mm -hmm. supplemental pamphlets and so forth. And I mean, you just mentioned you put, you know, your record with your comic about the band. Uh, it seems like you put a lot of focus on additional material with the comic. And I think that, I mean, based off the questions we got as well from our listeners, people obviously take note of that. You know, I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen it in person, but it looks great. So as far as conceptualizing this stuff, like, do you approach these projects, these comics, like thinking of like all this stuff beforehand, or is it just kind of spinning out after you're working on the comic? Because a lot of cool shit you're doing there. Oh, man, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like I love just like ephemera. You know, my office is just like full of bullshit from like you know, that people put out that like, like toys or, you know, like weird little mini comic things, board games, that sort of thing. And it's just like, a lot of the times it's like, I get really overwhelmed working on something and I need like another outlet to kind of like put my energy in and like recenter myself. And that ends up turning into like, oh, like, like a deep dive on like Pinterest or something and like finding like these old mad magazine mail-in subscription stuff from like the fifties and like all the cool stuff that they were just like, you know, doing with like the mail clubs and stuff like that. So it's just kind of like, I don't know. I love just like tactile things and just kind of the not limiting like the idea to just a book. Like it doesn't and like the board game was like super fun to make because it's something that I'd been wanting to do for a while. And it it was just like a way to kind of like, I don't know, work out like the book that I was working on and also just kind of like have this separate thing that's also connected. So like I am still kind of thinking about everything at once, but able to kind of just like focus my my energy on one or the other and just kind of create some sort of uh, some balance in my head because it's just like, I don't know, it's just like constantly just static in my head. Uh, so it just kind of like allows me to kind of focus on one thing, but kind of keep things rolling. No, for sure. And I mean, I'm assuming just based off what I've seen and heard, the uh, reaction to this stuff is very positive. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm really, I'm really happy with that because it's just kind of like, I don't know. A lot, a lot of my thought process behind it is like, what would I want to get in the mail? Like, what would make me happy kind of like to get from somebody? And so it's just kind of like to know that other people are kind of like into the same dumb shit that I am. You know, it, it really just kind of like warms my heart. For sure. Now, um, I haven't actually like I should have done some research here and looked at your actual like Patreon tiers. But um, as far as, you know, because a lot of the artists that we talk to on this podcast do have Patreons. But as far as most Patreons, people don't go above and beyond like you do with the merchandise mm. and the supplemental material in addition to the books that I've seen anyways. It does happen. But yeah, I feel like mainly it's like a subscription service to see work in progress or, you know, eventually you get a comic when it's finished. What do you do to make that cost sustainable for you? Because you're doing so much more than the average cartoonist on Patreon. Yeah. So I try to, I try to do everything in house that I can, you know, like every once in a while, like if I'll do like a sticker pack or something, like I'll go on the, like vinyl disorder and they have, uh, you know, these like massive sales, you know, you can get like a hundred stickers for like 30 bucks or something. Yeah. So, and you know, so I did that like over the course of a couple of weeks and just like, you know, just collected a bunch of stickers and, you know, made like a package and like a little fold over thing and, you know, sent that out. And, but like, I like all the paper materials and stuff, like, uh, I try not to buy much things for it. Like I try to kind of just like use what I have available to me. But that, like that said, it's just kind of like, you know, I appreciate like <laughs> everybody who's willing to donate like their hard earned money to like supporting my dumb shit. So I try to, to really honor that by just like making something special. And like a lot of the stuff I do, I do like as kind of like end of the day, cool down stuff. Like if I'm just chilling in bed, like I'll have my iPad and just kind of start sketching out stuff and that'll be a sticker or that'll be, I did the board game that way or, uh, this, uh, sketchbook that I'm about to send out, did it that way. And it's just like, I don't know. If I, if I do buy anything, I tend to kind of like really just scour the internet for like sales and shit and then be like, oh, like I can get a bunch of this shit for like pretty cheap. What can I make with that sort of thing? But like I learned a lot in my last, like I was working in like the film industry for like the last 12 years and in the art department specifically. And uh, one of my first gigs was doing uh, prop work for like a children's TV show. And so I got to really cut my teeth on like how to make stuff out of just like household materials and kind of like know how to make it kind of like, you know, camera ready and give it like a, like a nice aesthetic or like, like tricks and stuff, just kind of like learning like what materials are good for this and that. So it's doing a lot of that stuff is also just kind of like, not second nature, but it like it, it kind of like it, it makes me happy to kind of like, you know, be able to have uh, relive those kind of glory days of doing like the, the kids TV stuff and uh, just kind of arts and craftsy bullshit. For sure. Now, are you still working? Because I remember when we were at the retreat, um, you were uh, still doing stuff with the film industry. Are you still working there? Or are you full time freelance now? I'm out, baby. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because of the strikes or? No, no, just like stuff at home. Like, uh, okay. it's, it's hard to like maintain a relationship, uh, with that type of schedule. And just like, it just, you know, was 
becoming like more and more destructive on my body and it was just you know time for a change so now i'm just trying to figure out what that next step is but currently just kind of wrapping up the kind of like freelance kind of comic art stuff for the year and trying to get like another like part-time day job so i can kind of like balance continuing to do like comics hopefully more full-timey and get some some sort of like a regular pay hell yeah now you did uh allude earlier uh that you were you know possibly brought up in the suburbs are you from philly or did you relocate there i grew up about 45 minutes north of philadelphia okay but you know like junior high school high school spent like every weekend kind of like coming down for like a show or just like to bum around yeah. south street and just kind of like dick around and just like for sure ended up going to college there and then you studied film in school, I'm guessing. Yeah, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hard, <laughs> hard recommend. Do not do. Yeah, I dropped yeah. out. I didn't even want to get the last year of debt. So. Oh really? But yeah. yeah, I did three years at Western Kentucky. They had a really good like broadcasting program, like one of the uh -huh. best in the nation. But they yeah. like kind of shoved film into it, so it was just like I'm learning more about broadcasting than film with like yeah. supplemental film classes added, and it was like, do I really want to pull out another 18k? <laughs> Dude, it's it's such bullshit. Like yeah. Like I learned more on like one day of like PAing uh, on set than I did in like four years of college. And I was like, what sure. the fuck did I just spend all that money on? <laughs> but yeah, I mean like, yeah. So like, yeah, just like, yeah, went to college there and then moved down there and just have pretty much been there ever since though. Like my partner and I just recently, uh, last two years relocated to the burbs again. So, okay. yeah. So we're still like, we're like 25 minutes from like West Philly. Hell yeah. So um, when did comics come into your life? Was this like, you know, something you discovered later? Was it pretty much always there? You know, oddly enough, like I was not like a grown up. I was not like an athletic kid. I was a very, very lazy. Hell yeah. Me too. <laughs> and so it was like my parents were getting tired of like, well, you know, he doesn't want to play baseball. He does like, you know, faking earaches and like sitting in like the in the outfield and shit and <laughs> <laughs> so like uh there was this community center that offered comic book making class mm -hmm. so like i started going there when i was probably like 11 or 12 and the dude there mike duffy kind of just like taught the tricks of the trade to just like a bunch of like shithead kids you know like it was kind of cool how he did it like Depending on like your skill level, you know, there was just like, it was like, I would say like between 11 and 17 year old kids there. And, uh, he would draw like these books and they were always, they were like, you know, action comic -y stores, uh, sort of stuff. And they were all based on like fairy tales, but you know, with that like nineties, nineties edge to it. And he would like sketch out these, uh, 18 page, 24 page comics and then depending on your skill level, he would give you like, you know, the drawn page. And if you want to teach you inking with like a brush, you would just kind of like go over his pencils and like he'd kind of like teach you this or that. And then when you got like good enough to draw, you can draw your own page and then ink it. And then at the end of each uh, class or whatever, he would go get them all printed out. And then we would assemble them with like a stapler and then like trim them. And then they, you know, sell them at like the local comic shop. So you were doing this at, you started doing this at 12? Yeah. Yeah. Now, was this just like your parents were like, you have to do something. So you were like, okay, <laughs> comics. Or were you just like, I want to do comics. 
I, I wanted to do comics. I, I okay. you know, I think like, you know, as a kid, I was just, I'm like obsessed with like cartoons, like Rocky and Bullwinkle and Looney Tunes specifically and all like the early Disney animated stuff. And, you know, comics were just kind of like one of those things I wasn't super familiar with, but like knew that it was like kind of satisfying my love of drawing and just kind of learning how to like storytell and, you know, knowing that you can like do goofy things or do like really serious stuff. And I don't know. I kind of just like we, I did that for a while, then became like an angsty teen and like didn't draw for a long time. I was always drawing, but like not really doing comics. And it wasn't until like after college when I kind of realized that I, you know, before I had started getting into like the film industry and, or like doing some work there and being like, I don't know if I want to do this, start to kind of like fall back into comics and realize that this is kind of satisfying everything for me. It's like my mm-hmm. love of movies, my love of drawing and storytelling and that sort of shit. And yeah. You know, you did say that, you know, you just kind of like grew up drawing. So like, did you grow up reading comics? Like what were your, what was your relationship with comics? Like as a reader, as a reader, my, my relationship with comics was mostly mad magazine. Hell yeah. Cool. So like my parents was just like, we didn't have a subscription, but like we'd go to like the, like the newsstand or like the, the bookshop and like they'd buy me issues or like those big compendiums of like seventies mad, sixties mad. And just like chew through that and be like, Oh shit. Like it's first starting like, Oh, this comic has too many words. I'm not going to read that, but I'll look at the art. And then uh, I feel like mad is just like, it's like the perfect storytelling kind of vessel because you have this ability to kind of read these comics that, have no dialogue and just all action based. And then you have like those super wordy parodies of like movies and stuff. And it just like, I don't know, it kind of just blew the the hinges off the door and kind of just really set in motion, like everything that I would be interested in, in the future. Yeah. But I was sorry. I can hear my dog whining. Oh, uh, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the first comic I remember buying was Batman versus Spawn. The Todd McFarlane. Oh, the Frank Miller Todd Todd one? Yeah. I was going to um, say, they just brought that back, but it was Greg Capullo and Todd, and it fucking sucked. I just read it two <laughs> nights ago. It came out earlier this year, but I That's finally just got around to reading it. Yeah, it wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> Drawings were all right, but <laughs> it's like, yeah, Todd McFarlane's still writing like it's 1992. <laughs> but yeah, so no, I do remember that one coming out. So like, was that something like, did you follow like the image stuff and the Marvel stuff or nah, not really? You know, it... it... Kind of like I was into X-Men and Spawn. So it wasn't as, as like a horny young kid. I was more into just like the, uh, you know, the X-Men trading cards and like. Sure. Uh, Collecting you know, Psylocke and Rogue. and uh, yeah. yeah. Having like <laughs> confusing feelings about all those things. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, I didn't have. I didn't grow up reading a ton of shit. Okay. But like. You know, like as like an older millennial, like who's a, slowly approaching 40, there is like this, like, I don't know, like the slacker era, like underground comic stuff was like always in the air. Like there was always like this imagery of stuff like growing up, like I remember seeing like Buddy Bradley and the OK Soda stuff and like these elements of like Klaus and Burns and Bag and like just like permeating and then it wasn't until like you know high school i started reading some of that stuff i mean like oh okay like this stuff fucking rules 
Yeah, I just lost my train of thought. But like, uh, no, no, I mean, it totally yeah. makes sense though. So, was there a point where you were like, okay, I'm all in on comics? Like, was it when you were making them after a while? Was it before you were like, you made a conscious decision to be like, I really want to do this. I'm going to put all my energy into this. Uh, you know, when did you decide? Like, what was that tipping point moment for you when you were like, I'm in? It was probably like after, after the first book we put out. It was like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is, this is producing like, a sheer amount of like happiness and self-satisfaction that like, I don't know if I've ever achieved in anything before. And then actually maybe it might've been like tabling at SPX for like the first time and like, you know, having people like come up and be like, oh, cool. And then like, you know, making a bunch of sales and be like, oh, like maybe this isn't as out of reach as possible. So, Zooey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was just like, I, I think a combination of just like those early, early dreaming days and like actually kind of like seeing a little bit of money come in as a result of that sort of stuff. Sure. And then like, I think just like the, I guess, quasi success of like the last two books I put out has just, you know, fueled that even more. There's just like nothing else I want to do. Like I'm solitary. Like I love, I love to socialize, but I also just love kind of just like sitting by myself and just drawing and zoning out and just listening to music and like making shit. Hell yeah. So was the heel on the shovel books? Like, uh, I think the new one was like number seven or eight as far as like, you know, all the ones you published was that, were those mm -hmm. your first comics? Like number one, or were you doing stuff before that? That, you know, I, I would like, I had like a a huge collection of shit that I just never did anything with. Uh, but those were like the first books I would put out. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Cool. So you've literally just been like, you know, you've documented like everything like that you put out with this like imprint publishing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's okay. So I guess let's just walk me through the stages that you normally go through when you are developing a story or you're working through a comic. Are you, are you very methodical about each step the way some other cartoonists are like, I know MS is like super methodical yeah. about how they go about each story. Uh, are yeah. you, do you work in a similar fashion or, or not so much or like, you know, how, how do you do that? So I kind of go through my phone and go through all like the half finished like sentences that I put down as like ideas um, and start to like glean through those things. And generally there's always like some sort of story that's like, boiling in the back of my head but i i i'm a script writer like i i sit down i bang out the script you know depending on that like it could take like i don't know a couple of weeks to like a couple of months and then i usually get kind of tired with that and then i start kind of sketching those things out but i, I definitely need the script to kind of work off of i can't just sit down and just like look at a blank page and start to draw it drives me crazy. And I think that's why I never got anything done before is mm. because like, I just need direction. And even if it's like self-imposed direction, but yeah, I need a script and whether like things change or not, but like those, those building blocks are absolutely definite for me to get anything done. Now your scripts, do you approach them with like a, a film script kind of outline? Mm -hmm. Like, do you describe like the setting or do you actually like do thumbnails with your scripting? Uh, I don't do any thumb, uh, if I, I write it like a, like a film script. Okay. 
but like if there's a particular like like if i'm doing like a splash page or like a two-page spread like i will like you know use the image drawing thing in word or whatever program i'm using and just kind of like block out like okay here's panel one two and three and it's going to flow like this blah, blah 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 but unless it's something like more of a compl less complicated design i just kind of like panel one panel two panel three panel four and then sure. just like, you know that sort of thing and then i like thumbnail eh, i don't really thumbnail i kind of just like draw straight from that to to the to a page usually i'm drawing like pretty small like on like eight and a half by 11 paper and then i take that drawing i scan it in and then blow it up to 13 by 19 because that's what i ink on and so i printed out 13 by 19 and then i light box those sketches now are your pencils digital or you scan them in scan in like analog pencils and then blow those up scan them in analog oh okay okay yeah Hell yeah. I, I don't know about you guys, but like, just does your drawing style change like on like a iPad or like a Wacom or Wacom or whatever? Cause like my, like it's not the same type of drawing. Like I could try to draw something like I would with like a brush or a pencil and I just can't accomplish it. And it becomes like this like weird amorphous thing that I've never seen before that I don't really know if I like or hate. And I'm just curious if like you guys come across that as well. Uh, me personally, no, but I think that also depends on the size of the tablet, mm. sort of like how you're working. It's also, you know, if you're working on, say, one of those classic tablets, yeah, uh, rather than, say, a monitor tablet, that also, I think, kind of has an effect on it in a weird way. What do you use? So I use a monitor tablet. Uh, like a I, Cintiq? Yeah, it's like an off-brand Cintiq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of companies in the last 10 years that have come out with alternatives to the Cintiq in yeah. the Wacoms that are way more, I'm way, way, way more affordable than those brands. I think those usually go for like what, like 12 to 1500 I was just looking the other day because I got like, uh, you know, like advertised for one of those on like uh, Instagram and it was like three and a half grand. Yeah, that's um, yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're, yeah. they're very expensive. I mean, you, I, you do get what you pay for. There yeah, are elements or there are aspects to those devices that you're just not going to see in these other brands, these off-brand ones. But uh, the off-brand ones, in my opinion, work just as well. You won't have some of the features, but in terms of like, at least for what I'm doing, I can do pretty much everything I need to do on that. Uh, like, I don't, I don't need to be able to like. I forget the term, but it's like where you're able to like zoom in and zoom out just with your two fingers. Yeah. On the oh, tablets. Yeah, like the touch so yours isn't a touchpad. It is only synced with the uh, pen, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's just a pen. Yeah. And like, while I can see the benefit of that, also I can just do that with commands. So it's not really, mm -hmm. I'm not going to pay, you know, $2,000 more than I need to just for that <laughs> one element, you know, like that seems silly. Yeah. And then it also depends on a couple of other factors, like in terms of like how much uh, RAM does your, or how much, uh, how much RAM does your computer have that's running that device? Because if it's on the low end, in terms of the response from when you put your pen down onto the surface and draw something to what you see on the monitor or on your screen, there's going to be like a slight delay or a lag, and that mm -hmm. can cause some uh strange aberrations to happen within the drawing that you are not intending that's like way above my pay grade like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, no, I'm, I, I, I'm not you know and i'm not really a tech guy like i don't 
I yeah. Don't, I, I have very surface level knowledge of this stuff, but this is just based on experiences from working with this, from making that jump from analog to digital. And, yeah. you know, you do notice those subtle things, because I know what you're talking about. Like when you first draw something digitally, I remember the first time I ever, ever tried drawing anything on a tablet. And this had been, you it's know, it's fucked up. It's very like disorienting. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's when you disorienting. First do it. uh, the, the drawings look off, like you said, Steve. And it's a lot of that is just like tiny, subtle things like the memory of your computer. Uh, the settings of the brush, what kind of brush you're using, like all those yeah. things come into play. And then once you really start to use it more and you're able to like really tweak those elements, then it starts to look the way it should. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Cause I also do a lot of, I'm pretty much digital only now and I've been on Procreate oh, really? and an iPad. Yeah. For like the last like two years, I did have to do like weird things. Like uh, <laughs> they make these little like tips for the Apple pencil, like they're yeah. like, little condoms or whatever that <laughs> <laughs> give you some resistance. So it's like you're drawing on paper, you know? So there's like little things like that that they try, but it's never the same. I mean, it's, I mean, also going back to like what brush you're using, if you're just like, let's say for example, you're running on a Photoshop, you haven't downloaded any new brushes. You're just kind of using what is provided to you and you're going in blind. Most people will start out using just like the standard brush tip that's mm -hmm. provided in Photoshop. And it's just a singular line. There's no variation in width at all. So when you're drawing, it's just a single flat a line with the same dimensions and it just looks weird. It's like you're drawing an MS paint, right? Like no line weight or anything and just kind of right, like, right. Yeah. And that line weight can be adjusted either by selecting the right brushes or even tweaking the one that you're using. But th that's just stuff that, you know, if you're going in blind, you wouldn't have a frame of reference for, you know, <laughs> analog does all that for you. You know, you put more weight on a brush, you get a thicker line. Like it's just, you know, inherently, you know how that works. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's like learning how to like ink with a brush. Like the first time you do it, like it's just it's going to look like like dog shit. And right. like, it's just kind of learning the tool. Yes, 100 percent. Yes. So like it's it's always impressive to me. Like, do you, is your stuff mostly digital, JB? Because like like Cam, like I'm I'm like shocked that like that's digital because I always oh, like dude. Yeah, I, I just I, use the Micron brushes that are built in. So it looks, you know, like yeah. a real Micron, you know, so well, I, I mean, try like, to, yeah, pick real pins. Yeah, it's it's super impressive to me that like, you know, there's like people that can just emulate that stuff. Like uh, Rob Mursky's stuff is like, yeah. Know, oh, is he digital? I think so. Okay I, think, okay. I think he does like a hybrid, but I think like some of the stuff that he does is is digital. And it's always like, how did you get it to look like that? It looks like a brush. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like as I, I have, I'm always in awe of like people who can just like translate that like analog style into like the digital, like, fuck yeah. Do you see yourself ever going over there to digital or are you completely going to plan it on staying analog? You know, like I do storyboard work every once in a while. So like I do do digital stuff like that. But like, again, it's like I don't have the truest understanding of it. So like I'm never satisfied with how anything looks. Mm hmm. But I, I don't know. I think it's, I, I, uh, I took too long to kind of like understand how to use a brush. I'm not willing to give that up yet. For um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do the work for nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, we've talked about like Halftone Hospital. They provide a suite mm -hmm. of different oh, brushes yeah. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. really do a pretty good job of mimicking analog uh, tools. 
Yeah. And there's also plenty of other resources online, I think, that are kind of similar. They, they offer a multitude of different brushes that you can use that really do a great job translating that analog look into digital. And I, I also think that you really see be, um, a lot of examples of that once you start delving into like the illustration world. Mm-hmm. rather than comics like don't get me wrong there are definitely com- like we talked about comic creators people in small press and also who are doing like for work for the big two who are able to recreate that look but i think the illustration world they've really kind of hammered that down in terms of being yeah. able to replicate it, uh analog stuff into digital yeah i guess like when you're focusing on like a singular illustration versus like you know 20 pages of like little tiny drawings like it's just it's a different mindset and it's also a different uh knowledge base i feel like because cartoonists for the most part until fairly recently within the last 20 years from what i can see in terms of like actual private or public education uh illustration has always been sort of more forward thinking about that stuff Mm -hmm. whereas comics and I'm not saying this it's to its own detriment or anything, but I think there is sort of a time delay in comics in terms of understanding how those things are being used and how they can be applied to, to our trades. Well, yeah. and then you also have like, you know, I mean, people like Ramon who literally look down on digital artists, you know, and that's something that <laughs> happens in comics. You know, there's like the old school pro mentality. That's a real thing that yeah, I feel yeah. like doesn't exist, like you said, in il- the illustration world. Um, you know, like almost like it's a badge of honor to not go digital, you know, like. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think there's also kind of a, a reasoning, like a, an, an economic reasoning for that, too, because in the illustration world, originals don't really have that much to offer. There, there aren't yeah, really true. people out there collecting originals of uh, illustration work per se. You can do yeah. commissions, obviously, but in terms of like, oh, wow, like that cover that you did for that tech magazine, like I own the original and there's like <laughs> hundreds of thousands of collectors that want this. Like that's not really the case. But with comics, that mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And I think that's because uh, comic creators are, uh, you know, cartoonists, they know that they really need to squeeze as much as they can out of those drawings because they're, they're not Absolutely. making enough yeah. <laughs> doing the work. Yeah. Well, and uh-huh. to kind of add a real life example to that, you know, our friend Gleb, who's doing Superman right now, you, he can, you can't tell when he's digital and when he's not digital because he's gotten so good with his iPad, but um, he'll just straight up be like, yeah, if I'm on a tight deadline, I have to use my iPad. Mm-hmm. And if I know that I'm going to make money because it's like, you know, the first appearance of somebody, I'm drawing analog so I can sell those pages. Yeah. So I definitely think that is the mentality of like, you know, like JB said, like you got to kind of have your what's the phrase here? Your uh, uh, your pots. And I don't know. You got to have a bunch of different shit cooking at once, you know, <laughs> to kind of make cartooning sustainable. Yeah. As sad as that yeah. is. Yeah. It's like you got to get you got to get the most that you can out of what you're doing in yes. that in that moment, because yeah, for sure you're, you're not making enough just on what what you're being paid to do. Steve, I saw speaking of original art sales, I saw you're about to start possibly flirting with that. Yeah, I actually opened up sales uh, yesterday. Okay. So, like, thank you to, you know, the handful of people who already, like, bought some. Like, it's it's also just, like, online book sales start drying up, and it's just like, uh, I need to pay off uh, some credit card bills. Sure. So, like, the selling the original art stuff, like, it definitely, I mean, it has its, I don't know, it's like a lifeline, too, to be able to kind of, like, hold on to those and be able to 
you know, cash them in every once in a while. Like, cause yeah, it's, uh, it's saving me this month. So thank you guys. Yeah. Hell yeah. So, um, and we'll let you plug where you can get all that here shortly. Sure. I do want to get into questions cause that's going to kind of cover a lot, but is there anything you all want to double back on or cover before we get into those? Uh, no, I mean, I just want to, you know, shout out to Victoria and doing the Lord's work with, uh, halftone hospital. Cause like, Oh, for sure. With a, anytime that I do have to like, you know, try to use digital stuff and do stuff for, you know, like a commission or something like hundred percent using all that stuff. Like they're like the quality of what they're putting out. I only wish I knew how to use it better. Um, is just out of control. No, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, they, they even take it even further. Like they were making 3d printing, uh, nib, nib holders and everything. So yeah, shout yeah. out halftone hospital <laughs> yeah. for real. So yeah, actually, you know, I do want to ask you one more thing before we get into questions. You decided to go black and white on the new Perry. Mm -hmm. The first one was color. What was, did you just not feel like coloring? Did you want to work in black and white? <laughs> it looks great both ways. You know what I'm saying? Like why go from one to the other, you know? Yeah. So I, I decided to go black and white just as like a, cause it's kind of like a flashbacky episode, you know? Mm -hmm. And my original, my, I decided I was going to do black and white before like I even wrote the entire script because in my head like i was going to do like this is going to be like a noir style comic like i want to have some sort of like noir mystery kind of element to it well that a lot of that kind of like petered away uh i do think that some of it's still in there especially like kind of the mysteriousness of like certain characters here or there but yeah no the next book is going to be kind of like a combination of okay uh, of everything. And you did just team me up there perfectly. Um, I know you mentioned earlier in the episode that you are working on issue three of Heel on the Shovel. Um, and then I guess Perry's in the mix there too, a new Perry book. Yeah. Perry No Life, which is the one that I said I was going to do after midlife and just didn't do it. I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring up why <laughs> you did a title change. Yeah. For the second book, but okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it was just like, I wasn't ready to write that book just because it's just kind of some of the subject matter. But yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be like a common, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably going to like set myself up to fail, but like I want to try and do like some, like basically it's going to be 12 chapters and mm. trying to give each chapter a little bit of a different look. So like, you know, I think a majority is going to be kind of like a normal, like color, maybe black and white line drawing. And then there's, I'm trying to do some like cell animation kind of style stuff with it. Like, you know, drawing on acetate, painting the back of that and i'm you know painting the backgrounds maybe some like charcoal like a charcoal chapter and so just like gonna try and really i don't know push myself to see what i can and cannot achieve with this one hell yeah that sounds stoked i'm stoked to see that that sounds tight all righty so uh before we do get out of here steve you know i do want to go ahead and uh you know present you with our listener questions and as always uh, for the listeners if you want to participate in the show you can follow me on instagram at cam del rosario and the show at gutter boys pod for our guests we always put up questions uh for the uh listeners to ask and uh first up here we had uh one coming in from instagram user the hoxton mob and actually there was one that was uh, kind of close with this from a friend of the show Emily Mayer, mm -hmm. uh, they both asked about your Patreon. I know we kind of covered it, but if you have any, you know, things you want to add here, they asked, how does it feel giving out the best Patreon rewards in the game? Is there <laughs> pressure to keep it up? And uh, Emily said, uh, best Patreon in the game. How do you decide what to make for your Patreon? So I know we kind of covered it, but is there anything you want to add to that? I mean, it's just kind of like, uh, 
Let me see. And I guess the pressure was a new element there. Do you feel yeah. pressure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there definitely is some pressure. I think I kind of like jumped the gun kind of like mid-year with like the with the board game. Because like, how do I follow that up? Because that was like, that was like two or three months of like labor put into that. Just coming up with like the cards and the character sheets and like the rules and designing the board itself and like, you know, figuring out how to assemble it. And uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely pressure now, but I think that's like good. I still have like a whole back catalog of, of ideas that I want to do. Like, I know I want to do like a little zoetrope thing. I think like a lot more kind of like papery goods uh, in terms of like, uh, just kind of like, you know, cut it out, build it sort of shit. And I think I, I want to do like another activity book. But I don't know, it's, there's pressure, but it's also like, it's fun pressure. Like it's, it's so dumb. Like, every, like all the, all the ideas I feel like are so dumb, but like they bring, bring me joy. And I feel like it's, it's all worth it knowing that people also get enjoyment out of it. So yeah, I don't know. Hell yeah. All right. Next question is from Instagram user Festering Heights. They ask, you wake up with no hands but can choose an artist to finish your next book. Who is it? I'd probably call a doctor <laughs> first, but yeah, doctor go ahead. feel good. Yeah. I'd go my left foot style on it. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I feel like if that were the case, I'd probably want to do like a Bart Kira kind of situation and just get like, Oh Yeah everybody in the game to kind of just like do a page or two and just mm, you know, mm -hmm. do it like that. I feel like that would be super fun. So I'm going to do a cheating ass answer and um, I'm going to say Akira Toriyama just because if I lost my fucking hand, <laughs> um, I'm at least going to be rich if Toriyama draws my books. So Hell I'll be endless yeah. and rich. <laughs> <laughs> you, got a, yeah. you got a dream fill-in artist, JB? For me? Yeah. Oh, shit. No hands. No hands. Who's finishing your book? No, I would just be like, thank God the curse is over. And I would just <laughs> <laughs> move on with my life. I could finally find happiness. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Uh, next question came from uh, Instagram user Fennel Art. What up, Joey? Uh, actually, we already got into this, but anything art process related would be cool to hear. Anything you want to double back on or, you know, add to what we already said there? Uh, no, I think like we covered basically everything except for just like the, the nauseating feeling of just kind of like rocking back and forth, like trying to get the ideas out of the head and onto the page. But uh, yeah, well, I, I guess adding on to that question, what are your sort of go-to tools? Did we talk about that? No, not really. Actually. Shoot. Like, like what do I use? Yeah. What do you, you said a brush, but yeah. Yeah. Name stuff. Name shit. Okay. Using, using speedball ink? What are you using? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was using Martin's uh, technical drawing ink mm -hmm. for, for years because I remember seeing Adrian Tomini. Is that how you pronounce his name? I always fuck it up. Tomine is what I say, but I've also heard people say Tamina, but I think it's Tomine. We'll go with that. I could be wrong. Apologies yeah. if he's listening. Yeah. Don't worry, he's, he's uh, not. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he listens. Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard his name in the mix. <laughs> I, yeah, like I, I had saw his like an Instagram post like years ago that he was using, and I was like, oh, I'll try that out. I fell in love with it, and I bought like just a couple huge bottles of it, and 
finally ran out like mid, I think it was like mid Perry midlife. And I went to go buy more and I was like scouring it. It was like completely scrubbed from the internet. Like no, like they discontinued it and just like any link that had ever been available was just gone. Like, now, do you think it was just like a victim of the pandemic? Like supply chain know. issues? Okay. I, I don't know. But like I ended up reaching out to Adrian being like, hey, man, I feel like I'm going fucking crazy because like I know that I bought this ink. Like I threw, I poured the ink into a different bottle. <laughs> I got rid of the label, but I knew that I bought it. Like what the hell happened? And he just kind of like said like, yeah, like they discontinued it. And oh, it sucks. Was, man. Yeah. But I use, uh, what the hell is it? It's still Martin's carbon black India ink and a Raphael brush. This has got some stupid number, like 24 or 86 or something. And then like, you know, like a mechanical pencil. <laughs> hell yeah. That's what's up. So you're using just regular lead. You don't use like blue line. Yeah, I've done blue line in the past. Mm-hmm. I just, I kind of like took like over the last couple of years going to the light box and just, that's just kind of like, is more comfortable where I am and where I am now. Plus I think like having like pages to resell, it just look, looks a little cleaner and prettier. So yeah, then I got like some like shitty light board I bought off of Amazon for like 50 bucks. And is it one of those flat ones? Yeah, it's one of those flat yeah, ones. Yeah, the LED ones. Which yeah. is, they're nice, but like, I wish it had the... I miss the angle of like the old yeah. light bulb ones. Hell yeah. Well, what, what's nice about those flat ones though, is that you can technically put them up on, like if you're working on a, on a drawing desk that's already angled, yeah. you can put it up there. Whereas with the light box, you can't really be doing that. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. My drawing desk has like too much shit. on it, so I, <laughs> I get it, man. I get it. Trust <laughs> me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then for like lettering, and stuff i use the statler mars 300 pen series basically like the german version of the rapidograph right yeah. right kind of tying into that question just to piggyback sorry to jump ahead jb but friend of the show jazz heist did have a process question as well and asked uh what's your favorite part of the process so while we're still just put a bow on this here what is your favorite part of the process uh, besides being done, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I think it's brushing. Like, okay, there's always a lot of like Bob Ross happy accidents that come out in that. Oh yeah, yeah. That like kind of like remind me why I I I do it that way. So yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely inking with the brush. That's my favorite. Hell yeah. Kind of harping back on the technical pencils and yeah. you know moving away from doing uh, non-photo blue because you want to do it on a light box and have it look cleaner and that totally makes sense it is wild to me how there's so many like professionals in the field who don't mess with non-photo and also don't mess with light boxes they will just <laughs> they will just sketch on the board on the page and mm -hmm. then ink over it and then like erase what they can after I, That's I've, how I was taught. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I'd be like, whenever I've done that, it's just like I end up just destroying the paper from the eraser just because it's like, it just chews it up because the pencils are on there too heavy and it's just like, it ends up looking like garbage. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, if you use a softer lead and yeah. you're also using the, I forget what they're called, but like the, 
the like gummy they're they're yeah, the ones that you can ball up guys. and kind of like tear mm-hmm. apart and stuff and then put back together. I had better luck with those than sort of your standard block erasers. I've been I'm a, I'm a huge fan of like the sumo black plastic erasers. Oh, those, okay. Yeah. Those are the, like pick up the best for me. I like all the uh like the gummy erasers and shit like it just reminds me of like the the two years I did in community college trying to oh to, god to do like art school and like life drawing and shit just, yeah <laughs> you're just having wads of just uh uh-huh. yeah of uh blacked out muddy yeah. uh eraser balls yeah and you like just end up making everything dirtier yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's crazy to think that like there were people using that on like charcoal drawings too like fuck. yeah it's nuts just the heaviest pigment. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> also, hey, anybody listening to this and they want to make comics and they don't know where to start, do figure drawing. You'd, yeah. you'd, be, you'd be surprised how, how helpful that will be. I want to get back into it. Like, Yeah, I, it's, it's one of those things that I feel like not enough people recommend when yeah. talking about getting into this stuff. Because... Figure drawing is so fundamental to really everything uh, when you're well, doing. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just going to say it's, it's, it's like all like the great, like, you know, if you want to know how to deconstruct something, you need to understand yes. how to, to do it well. Like, right. you know, like all the people that can do like abstract paintings and, you know, I hate to use Picasso as an example, but like, you know, he can draw photorealistic and then be able to know the anatomy and like the shapes and all that shit and be able to kind of create a working piece of abstract art. Um, and I feel right. like the same applies for cartooning. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, you look at all those classic cartoonists too, like they knew how to, oh, God, yeah. how to draw, like they understood the human form. They understood how, like the mechanics of it and how it worked, how each part worked in relation to the other. Yeah. And all, that is so important when doing cartooning or drawing in general, no matter how stylized it is, because you can't really deconstruct anything unless you already know how it, how the form works to begin with. Absolutely. We did it. Art school. For sure. There you go. Yeah. And hey, you don't even have to go to art school for that. That's a great yeah. thing. You can go to, like you said, community. YouTube.com. Community, co- Seriously. community college. <laughs> they, they will offer you courses. There's tons of places in most cities that offer uh, sit-ins for figure drawing events and stuff like that, where you can just go in and just draw whatever model they have for that night. And that's, I mean, you're, you're going to be in a room with some weirdos, but Oh, in yes the, the beginning of funny people yeah, <laughs> yeah but that the, yeah that is important and also if you're not comfortable with that just fucking go out and just draw people that you see just, you know like go to a library just sit in and just people watch and draw them go to a museum yeah. you don't have mm-hmm. to spend a dime on this yeah yeah for sure hell yeah uh, all right next question is from friend of the show ryan at awful quiet on instagram Favorite toy from a cereal box or fast food kids meal growing up? Want to hear from all of you. I actually thought about this, so I can go first while you all think of this. There was a WWF Superstars cereal back in the early 90s, and mm-hmm. they came with flip books. And I remember wanting to get all four flip books. All it was is like you would like flip through and you'd see like the Ultimate Warrior doing a body slam. <laughs> but I remember that was like the first like I wanted to get all of them as far as stuff like that. Um, and as far as Happy Meal stuff, the uh, Batman, the animated series, and the uh, Power Rangers, the movie, 
oh, tie-ins shit. for McDonald's, the Happy Meal toys. Those are the ones that I actually remember like playing with because I always felt like Happy Meal toys, they weren't cheap, but they you couldn't do much with them. Yeah. But those figures you could. They were like articulate. Yeah. And they came with the Zords. So those were the ones I had the most fun with. Ah, the Zords. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, mine is, I feel like significantly more lame. Um, <laughs> hey, there's no, there's no bad answers here. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're <all> right. <laughs> yeah. There was like, um, I remember, I forget what cereal, cereal was from, but like I got this Garfield reflector for your bike spokes. Oh shit. Hell yeah. It was like his face and like the eyes were like the reflecting part. And I remember just being so hyped to get that and like crack that into like my, like uh my purple huffy and just like roll around the block just thinking i was like hot shit with it that and there was like a a a spoon from like when they reissued like the original star wars in theaters oh i know Um, what you're talking about yeah they were they the color changers no 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 they they had like an led light yeah they were like lightsabers right yeah 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 yeah. i think those were uh not graham cracker crunch what what the fuck was it called uh, golden grams oh. no cinnamon cinnamon toast crunch cinnamon, cinnamon toast crunch. crunch okay yeah yeah i do remember those though yeah hell yeah i remember i, I had a jar jar binks spoon actually episode <laughs> one but like it was a color changer like oh it was, like, yeah it was all yeah. plastic and like you know like the tip where you held was like modeled after jar jar's head but when you put it in cold milk it would turn a different color that's what's up great yeah gimmick. yeah yeah <laughs> what about you jb probably my earliest memory in terms of cereal was it it was really funny because it came like shrink wrapped with the cereal box Mm -hmm. because it was so large yeah but it was a uh, ninja turtles plastic bowl Mm. yes yes that that you could put the cereal in yeah and i just remember loving that thing like that was that was my Mm go-to to to eat anything out of yeah. Uh, I should probably, I should, pro- man, if I'm not, hopefully in the, in the near future when I'm not constantly broke, I'll try and find one of those again, but <laughs> I feel like listeners, yeah. if you want to be really fucking cool, like Drew B. Hall was to me that one time when I was saying I wanted a Batman forever mug, somebody bring JB one of these bowls at a show. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Do there it. you go. I got to check with my, one of my best friends his he, he had a bunch of those growing up. So sleeping over his house and like, uh, eating cereal out of those was always the best. Hell yeah. I feel like was his mom a, still has them. Was it a Ninja Turtle cereal or was it just some cereal that had a tie-in deal? No, it was it was the Ninja Turtle cereal. It okay. was basically it was basically Lucky Charms, but the you know, the marshmallow pieces were Ninja Turtle themed. Hell yeah. That's what's up. Uh and then for fast food, like kids' toys, happy meals, whatever. I remember this was back when I was bedridden in a hospital over Halloween. At that time, the Happy Meal toy that you got was the chicken nuggets with yes. the costumes on them. Yes, yes. You know, there was like a Frankenstein and a Dracula and a ghost, and it was just like a sheet. Yeah. They're just solid pieces of plastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they were great because they were interchangeable, and you can make them wear different costumes, and I just remember loving those. Yeah, those were great. Oh, man. Well, uh, for Christmas, I think it was last year, one of my friend's wife got him like all the old McDonald's Transformer toys. Oh, nice. You know, so it's like the the Happy Meal toy that transforms into a little robot guy and like the yeah, fries. Yeah, 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 yeah. I rem- oh, those were great too. Yeah, like the one that was just like fries mm-hmm. and they would turn into, yeah, yeah. I think they were like dinosaurs too, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I think you're right. Man, fuck. Man, I'm, they uh, make them like they used I'm, to. I'm looking up these bowls right now on eBay 
And um, if you want an unopened set, uh, it's like 900 bucks oh, with 57 right. watchers. And that, you can yeah. actually, I didn't know this, you can actually get cereal boxes graded now. So they have graded. You can get anything graded. You can get anything fucking graded now. They have slabbed uh, graded uh, Ninja Turtle cereal boxes. And if you want that set of uh, three, not even four of them, just three of them, uh, $2,100. <sighs> but the actual bowls by themselves are 40 or less, it looks like. But I guess if you got all four, you know, they're looking at a couple hundred bucks. Crazy. So crazy. Yeah. Was, they look yeah. cool, though. They look cool. I never saw these somehow. They look cool. Were the bottoms, because I'm only seeing the top view, were the bottoms actually like shells or was it? Because it looks like it's like the inside would be like if you cut a turtle in half. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's just flat. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'd be a little too morbid, I think, for kids. <laughs> Although now that I think about it, like the I know that we're getting off topic here, but like there were characters in the original Playmates line that like I think Bebop was covered, like he had his shoulder armor were just hollowed out turtle shells. Oh, like, oh, really? Like he killed turtles and that's what he yeah, wore. Hell yeah, yeah that's yeah, gnarly. Yeah. That's what's up. Yeah. All right, well, uh, not really a question, but a uh, friend of the show and to all of us, uh, Caroline Cash said, what's up, y'all? So what's up, Caroline? What's up? What's um, up? But, yeah. You what's know, up? What's up? <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, real questions. Nick Forker, uh, who was at our show, also a friend of the show. Everybody's a fucking friend of the show at this point. But um, <laughs> what up, Nick? Uh, Nick said, what is your favorite comic book cover that you have ever drawn? Oh, that's probably the issue of Island. I, drew I figured that's Nick what he was Forker. teeing up there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I love a con- I love a Confederacy of Dunces. That's one of my favorite books. So I'm I'm impartial to the I'm partial to the Paradise oh, thing. Yeah, I'm glad you picked yeah. up on that. Yeah, dude, I've I've read that book so many times. I knew what it was exactly, and I can tell you even color drop the uh, yeah. colors yeah, from the, sure the real did. cover. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad thing. I mean, if you're yeah. gonna do it, go all the way out. Yeah, ah, uh, it's that book is unbelievable. Yeah, amazing. Have you read that, JB? You'd like it. It's about unionizing. But it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's about this dumbass dude who's like overeducated and doesn't want to work. So he's forced to get a job and he hates the work conditions. So he just gets a union going because he's so fucking lazy. <laughs> it rules. Like it's such a funny ass book, dude. It was written in Accidental the 60s. class consciousness. Yeah. yeah. It was like written in the 60s and it really sucks because like the author killed himself um, and was just trying to get it published. And of course, his mother got it published after he died and it sold yeah. millions and millions of copies. But yeah, great book. I think, isn't there like another manuscript that he, that she had sitting, that she was sitting on? Yeah, there was one called Neon Bible that was very different, uh, very different, not funny at all. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I think that one was written first, but yeah, it's it's a shame that we didn't get more work from that author. It really is. And it's, it's like definitely one of those books that like, I really hope does not get like a film adaptation because it's like, it's just like one of those ones just, they just, they can't do it. Yeah, it's and well, and the crazy thing is, is I've, I've heard that it's like one of those projects that everybody in Hollywood tries to get off the ground. Apparently, Will Ferrell's like cause I've looked it up, you know, uh, Will yeah. Ferrell's tried to get that going multiple times. Uh, he's really yeah. interested in adapting that frat guy, Will Ferrell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Alex Knoll. What's up, Alex? Alex asked more fun to draw the comic or the bonus stuff like board games, club member cards, etc. I, yeah, would definitely be the, I guess like the bonus stuff because it's, there's a little less pressure on it. You know, I don't know how you guys are when you make comics, but like, it's sometimes just like, just torture. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, you, not even sometimes like just all the time. Of the time. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> just like sitting there writhing, like trying to like convince yourself you're happy with what you just did. Yes. Overthinking shit that nobody's even going to notice. Yeah, like, that nobody gives a shit yeah. about. Uh, so, yeah, I would definitely say that the the ephemera stuff is definitely more fun to to kind of put together. But, yeah. Yeah. That's hell yeah. That's what's up. Well, um, last question comes from uh, someone local to Philly as well. And before I ask this, actually, best comic city. Is it Philly? Is it Columbus? Is it Chicago or L.A.? Where are you Ooh. going? <sighs> Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wild card. Okay. Yeah. Who, is, is anybody actually working there? I don't know. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, like Philly is it's it's really blossoming and it, it's. You know, there was always like a little bit of a scene here. Mm -hmm. You know, you got like Box Brown and Pat Alicio and, you know, just a handful of other like super talented creators. But I think like, you know, Partners and Son has done just like a really good job of just kind of making it just kind of this goo of people like you know, yeah. people are coming at, you know, like most cities, like if you're in one part of the neighborhood or not, like you're not leaving that neighborhood very often. Like, right. and so like them being kind of like this, like home base and like doing shows there and signings and gallery things, like it gets everybody kind of like in the mix and gets everybody talking. And I think it's just like done a lot for like the community building and now we have just like, you know, Uber talents moving to Philly and just It is like, crazy. It seems like the new like Mecca that everyone's traveling to. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody's like going there now. Yeah. I mean, like I, I'm all for it. Like everyone should yeah. move to Philly. It's it's like the the worst, best place in the world. <laughs> I plan on doing a show there at some point next year. So I will finally make my make my ass uh up there. Hell yeah. You guys yeah. always got a place to crash here. Hell yeah, that's what's up. But yeah, I mean, like Philly's, you know, it's an interesting city, like, and I'm interested to see, like, you know, with like the people who are moving here, like how that environment kind of like, you know, influences their work because, you know, like no matter where you are, like, you know, it's, it's going to change your perception of things. And, you know, Philly's like the largest, poorest city in the country. And like, it just has this grit and this attitude and this like fuck you what are you looking at sort of thing but it's also like people are gonna like come out and they're gonna like you know champion you like if you're from here so it's 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 awesome i encourage everybody to at least visit it and if you ever want like a little tour i'd ha be happy to walk you around and you, you like, don't want to tell all of our listeners that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean like there's there's like a good chunk of like like i would say like a third of the perry books are just like a walking tour of philadelphia yeah like i don't know i fucking love that city yeah i i hate it as much as i love it um <laughs> but you know it's yeah it's it's just what it is um, hell yeah there's this old billboard that was up there. It said, uh, Philly's not as bad as Philadelphia would say it is. <laughs> <laughs> but sell. Great yeah. slogan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just like every time I'm watching a movie or something and like Philly gets repped or somebody's talking shit on it, like it just 
I love it. It cracks me up. Like mm-hmm. David Lynch got his start here. There's like a, a neighborhood called the Eraserhood uh, that's got this. Oh like, hell yeah! <laughs> this big portrait of uh, Jack Nance from Eraserhead on it, and it's an, over a mausoleum that has been turned into an art space uh, that does like shows and gallery events and stuff there. And I'm fairly certain Eraserhood was just like a huge fuck you to Philadelphia. So yeah, I mean. And he always throws shade and I think it was like Twin Peaks or something like they're always dis distant Philly, but that just makes us stronger. Like that just makes everybody like the, it's a city that feeds on hate. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, um, you know, that all got brought up because our last question came from a friend of the show, previous guest, Nate Garcia. What did you have for breakfast, Steve? Be honest. Uh, I was regretting this question. Um, <laughs> Bugs. Well, yeah. I sent it to you last night, so if you I didn't know, cook but then as I was slam, as I was really eating as I was eating this morning, I realized I was going to be asked this question, and I was just eating like lunch meat out of the bags, like standing over the kitchen table. <laughs> Tony Soprano breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you uh, online if they want to check out more of your work and get that original art as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get that money. Well, thanks, guys, for uh, having me again. And you can basically buy my comics and art at www.hotpresscomics.com. I just uploaded a bunch of original art there and all the comics and anything that I put up there is going to be on that site and then instagram is at pillow talk 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 and at hot press comics but you know i feel like that we have not touched that account in <laughs> like bison's tcaf last year and then uh is that it are you doing any shows for the rest of the year or are you staying home i'm staying home i did hell yeah did pcx and then that was kind of it for the year hopefully next year do a lot more but for sure yeah i missed you at cxc so hopefully i'll see you on the road next year absolutely would love that definitely yeah maybe we can have you on a reading oh that'd be fun yeah, all the videos look so good yeah if you're around we'll definitely get you on fuck yeah has major fomo <laughs> <laughs> no but yeah good like shout out to drew for putting that together too like that just you guys bang up job wish it was there yeah, it'll happen again, so we'll see you at the next one. Good, good. Yeah. Rumor yeah. is there's interest in Philly. Mm. Yeah. And I actually got a text while we were recording that uh, there's interest in Oregon. So, JB, after we record this, stay on, because I'll tell you about this. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, listeners, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Gutter Boys. And uh big shout-out to our uh, friend, past guest, and uh, cabin mate, Steve, thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so listeners, until next time, stay gutter. على ديني على أرض تلاقيني أنا لهلي أنا فديه أنا دم فلسطيني 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 أنا دم فلسطيني